Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series on the book of Romans and teaches us how God has made himself known. Pastor Josh discusses the fact that God has put the knowledge of himself in all of us. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Everybody Knows. One eighteen to 23 I'll give you just a second to turn there. Hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. I was just thinking how incredibly refreshing times of rest and feasting can be. There's a reason why God has given them to us. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23, we'll read, we'll pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll study through and look at, uh, finish up this passage today. So we've spent two weeks in this already. Today we'll finish up and look at the last of the truths that are here. So Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, let's read together. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his divine power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Uh, let's bow together and let's ask for God's help as we study. Oh, Lord our God, Father, what we're about to do seems so simple. Just study this book but God, you tell us that there's an entire war being fought right now over every soul in this room and those who will hear over whether or not we'll listen and then over whether or not we'll do anything about it, whether or not we'll respond. Now, the fate of our eternity rests on what happens every time that we open your word. And so God, I'm, I'm asking Please come and do the work that only you can do. Father, I, I beg that you come and captivate our attention. Grip us by the word. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word is not like any other truth in existence. Father, we are praying, O oh Lord, that you will accomplish your purposes through the work of your word, uh, Lord, in, in this time. God, your sons and daughters gathered here, we come out of another week where we've struggled and we've had good moments, but we've also sinned against you. God, we sinned against you knowingly. We've sinned against you accidentally. Father, we're coming once again to you and needing, needing, challenged and convicted, needing being brought to repentance, but also needing to be strengthened, grown in our knowledge and grown in obedience. So God, please work all of these things. Every one of us, specifically what we need, please God, work it. But Father, in this room, any that have not yet turned from resisting you, still living in a way of trying to be their own Lord, 
not bowing to you, not trusting in Christ, thinking thoughts of their own goodness makes them worthy before you, not comprehending that we are all guilty, all unworthy, and need salvation in Christ. Please, God, I pray, awaken, open the eyes, show the need for salvation. And I pray, God, help us as we study, Lord, as you show us all of our guilt as we stand before you. So please, God, teach your truths. Work your grace, we pray. Give me help to preach in all the ways I'm going to need it. And all of us, Lord, as we sit beneath your word, please, God, show us and work grace in this time. We pray all these things through the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, During the French Revolution, the masses that were involved in all of the savagery and such that was going on in that season, there was a massive turning away from all of Christianity and not just Christianity, but of any, any sort of focus on God whatsoever, the masses were going and destroying churches, tearing down steeples, crosses, any kind of religious symbol so that they would never have to be confronted, never have to be reminded of the reality of God. And they were blatant in saying it, but the Christians responded Yes, but you cannot rip the stars from the sky. You may remember as we've talked in times past about the the account of Helen Keller, the young girl who was born blind and deaf. Um, Helen Keller in her childhood years was a terror and nearly impossible to control having inability to communicate and such. And you may remember the story that a woman by the name of Ann Sullivan came and worked tirelessly in order to find a way to help her communicate. And Helen Keller learned to communicate by feeling sign language. And as she was given the ability to communicate, to discover there was actually this beautiful mind that had been there all along, but lacked the ability to interact with the world around her. And after she learned to communicate, there's all kinds of amazing things that came out of her life, but one of them being a book that she wrote called The Story of My Life. And there's a moment in that book where she talks about Ann Sullivan coming to her and wanting to tell her about God. And you imagine from Miss Sullivan's perspective, how would you go about trying to explain this to someone who has never encountered this concept before? But as Miss Sullivan began to explain to her about God, Helen responded, she already knew about him. She just didn't know his name. We've begun to work through this section, this paragraph looking at here, this argument that God is laying out to all of the world. Spirit of God is moving Paul, moving his pen, inspiring him that this explanation of the gospel is being given to the world and where God begins in helping us to understand this message that God calls the gospel, the message of Christ, begins with our need of the gospel. In the first three chapters, there is this argument laid out showing us that every soul, all of humanity, we all collectively stand guilty before God. We're all in the exact opposite place of what the world is always saying. We're all stand sinful, and criminals having broken the law of God. We're all in need of a solution 
for our sin problem before a holy God who doesn't let any sin in his presence and is never going to let a sinner into his kingdom. And this word that God calls the gospel is the message of how God has made a way, made a solution for our sins. Made a way for our sins to be forgiven, cleansed, taken care of. And if they're taken care of and we're at peace with God, then there's a way we can have eternal life brought into his presence. That way that he's done that is through his son. The work of Christ on the cross has made a way for our sins to be absolved, us made right with God and brought into his presence. The way that you receive that is by turning, turning from resisting God, resisting his law, turning a heart of submission to him. That's what the Bible calls the word repent, to turn from resisting God and to come look to specifically to Christ and trust in him. That's the message that the Bible calls the gospel. So I just told it to you in about 60 seconds. But there are a number of parts of that that the world resists. Even as you're hearing it, if you're new to studying the Bible and not real familiar with what it says, as I just said all that language about you're guilty and sinful, you may be sitting there thinking, wow, we picked the wrong church this morning, really would have wanted something a little more encouraging to make me feel a little better about all this. And there may be a part in your heart that's resisting that and saying, I I don't think that's reality. There's a resistance that's there. But another place that many have a resistance and objection with what the Bible says is this part about where God declares that everybody knows about him. Everyone. Everyone knows about God. And everyone has rejected the God that they know. There can be kind of an argument that says, whoa, 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 wait a second, I don't... Not everybody knows about God, pastor. Not everybody has a Bible. Not everybody has access to a church. There are places where they don't know about God. And what this passage is doing is rather than just saying it in one sentence, everybody knows about God, that's all the scripture could have said. What this passage is doing is laying out an argument showing, exposing, everyone knows And everyone has resisted. Everyone is in sin. Everyone collectively stands guilty before God without Christ. And everyone stands in need of a solution. And so this is where we begin. This is where the argument begins is in this understanding of the knowledge of God and how we have ignored and suppressed and rejected that knowledge. And so this morning, we're going to finish up this part of the argument. We've spent two weeks um, looking at verse 18 specifically because that's kind of the root of the argument. We needed to understand in depth what was being said there. So now that you've learned and you remember everything that we've talked about during those two Sundays. Now we can go forward into the rest of the argument and finish up what is said right here in this. And so here is the flow of the argument again. We're told that the wrath of God has begun to be poured out. There's a wrath that is to come, but there's a wrath that God has already started pouring out. And if someone were to say, well, why God? Why are you pouring out your wrath already? He begins to answer it. He answers it first by saying, because humans have done evil. And here are two categories of that evil. If it all sin into two, two categories, vertical and horizontal. 
sins of worship, sins of robbing God of glory that he is due, and then the general unrighteous deeds that take place amongst us. Yes, all of it is in some way a sin against God. Even if you harm another person, it is still sin against God. But there's a very direct way of sinning against worship. And then what the text does is it follows that pattern. There is in verses 19 to 23, an explanation of ways that we and the nations have sinned vertically against God by robbing him of glory. And then starting in verse 24 down to the end of the chapter, it'll go through some of those various unrighteous deeds that take place. So we're finishing up this section here on ways that we sin vertically against God. But the genius of the whole passage is this. You and I have grown up in a land that we have all had access to the scriptures. I mean, for crying out loud, we live in a place where there are organizations who go pass out Bibles for free. We got shelves of Bibles. We have all had access to the scriptures. There's a particular way that we stand guilty before God having resisted what was there before we turn to Christ for you who are a Christian apart from Christ. But then there is also a way that those that have not had access to the scriptures have sinned vertically as well. And so the passage is first going to look at that, all of those in the world, how we all stand guilty, including those who have not had access to the scriptures. And then chapter two is really specifically, boy, if you talk about having your toes stepped on, chapter two is going to point a finger at all of us and say, but you who have had the scriptures. And so we'll look at some of those specific things. So in looking at this, got three parts I want to bring out today. So here are the three points if you're taking notes. Number one, God has made himself known. Number two, they did not glorify the God they know about. And number three, they exchanged the living God for invented gods. You kind of see all that in the text. Let's work our way through the points and the verses. So number one, God has made himself known. Look at verse 19 again. So here is why there is evil. There is guilt. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So this is sort of like the beginning of a premise that he's then going to explain. All men suppress the truth. If somebody were to say, well, what do you mean? Uh, They suppress the truth. Not everybody has a Bible. Here's the response. God has made himself known, evident, God has made himself revealed. God has made himself clear. God has made himself unmistakable. Well, how? Uh, where? He's made himself evident. Notice the, very, the, the careful language, okay? This is where, I don't know if you geek out on words, okay? Preachers geek out on words. We love them, okay? We just get so excited about them. God has made himself known within them and to them. Do you see two different things are being said there? In and two, inside and outside. New American Standard picks that word within so as to emphasize the inside part. It, it's a complicated Greek word. It's the word in. It's where we get our English word in, okay? New American Standard is emphasizing the in that is there. So in us, God has revealed himself and outside of us, meaning this, 
There are some truths you just know. And then there are some truths we discover and we learn. But here's the point that the text is saying. God has revealed himself in both ways. Do you see that? God has revealed himself in both ways, both in ways that we all just know and you can't really explain how we know certain things. But then also in the world around us in thousands of specific ways, ways that we discover God has made himself known. So think about these two ways. Let's spend just a little bit of time on this one. First, inside. There are a lot of things we just know. The way that bucks know to chase in the rut. The same way that, did you know that there are some birds that navigate by the stars? I guess it's really, really amazing. And the way that we, we know that they navigate by the stars, because they're wild, there was this like question like, is there an internal kind of compass that they have? What is this? Well, they hatched certain birds in an artificial environment and did kind of like one of those star labs but they turned the star lab to where it wasn't facing true north and south and the birds oriented themselves according to north and south by the stars that were artificially there. So why don't you just think about this? Here are these birds, they're hatched. They never sat down and read a book. They, they never had a moment where somebody taught them a lesson just instinctively. They know how to orient themselves to the cardinal directions. Now, my main point is not look at the handiwork of God and how do you explain that, but it is a pretty good question. How do you explain that, that kind of thing and the world is filled with thousands of those kinds of moments? The naturalist says, well, millions of years of evolution taught them that. That's not an answer. You're saying words, but that's not actually saying anything. That's not the why, that's not the how, but that's not my point right now. My main point is God has made a world where creatures, including us, know things instinctively. And everybody, everybody operates daily on hundreds of principles that we just know, like good and evil, what the Bible calls the law of God that is written on our hearts. Now, our understanding of good and evil is not perfect from the womb. You, you tracking with me, okay? But it is there. Our knowledge of the law of God, it's not, it's not absolute, but it is there. God has placed these on us. And when you engage with the atheist, this is one of the ways to point out contradictions. The naturalist borrows from the Christian worldview every single day. I even heard of a testimony of a former atheist, and she said, I eventually got tired of borrowing from the Christian worldview. And what she meant was our whole world is built upon principles of things that we just instinctively know. And what the scripture says is, Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity in our hearts. God has put the knowledge of himself instinctively in us and then also outside of us. All around us, God has given ways that we can discover and we can learn. And this would include, this is not exaggerating, thousands of specific parts of this world from cells to stars that show God. Look at verse 20 again. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, 
And then I, I believe that the way that this is worded is it's like there's a semicolon here. So I don't think it's like here are three things, invisible attributes, eternal power, and divine nature. I believe what the text is saying is God has made known his invisible attributes. Here are two of them. His eternal power and divine nature. They have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. When, when God created mankind, Adam and Eve knew God. They knew him intimately. They knew him well. God came and would walk with them. God would meet with them in a personal way on a daily basis. But friends, after the fall, everything changed. God will not have fellowship with wickedness. God will not come and, and give a big hug to evil. He doesn't take what is wicked into himself. And so the way that God then revealed himself after the fall, it changed. And this is what sometimes we have a hard time with. God is still revealing himself, but he's not doing it in the exact same way that he did at the beginning with Adam and Eve. Because of sin, God is revealing himself in different kinds of ways. Have you ever asked the question, I have asked this question to God, and I have said things like, God, why, why don't you just show yourself? You know, like, why don't you just work in such a way that, like, everybody knows that you're there? Because... You know, unbelief, it, it bothers us. And the struggle of faith, it's, it's frustrating. And so have you ever asked that question? Like, God, why, why won't you just show yourself? Here's the answer. He does. Oh, okay, pastor, okay, nice little play on words there. You know what I mean. What I mean is show himself in a way that it's unmistakable and undeniable. And the answer is, he does. No, pastor, you're not being fair. What I mean is, why doesn't God speak to us? Why doesn't God, you know, like that? And the answer is, he does, he does, he does. How about God's providence being that Psalm 19 was our scripture reading for this morning? The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. Now, now look what the text does here. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. And then it's almost like the text has a but here. But their line, the, the revelation has gone through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. Friends, every single day, God does a thousand things that show him. And they show his glory. They show his attributes. The problem is, well, we got a number of problems. We have a number of reasons why we struggle with receiving them. Here's one that scripture brings up a lot. In our fallen state, in our moral degeneracy, we are not able to appreciate them. And what I mean by not able is kind of the way that a spoiled kid doesn't say thank you. The way that a spoiled kid is, is blind to gratitude, like it's blindness, but it's not an innocent blindness. It's, it's a blindness that comes from a moral flaw in our blindness. We often fail to appreciate. 
fail to respond to ways that God reveals himself. Here's one of the ways that we fail to do it. Sometimes we might or others might imagine other ways it could have happened, right? Like God gives one of those amazing sunsets and we imagine some other way it could have happened. Look, nothing to see here, folks. Just light refracting through water vapor, okay? Never mind that it's so amazing Bob Ross could never imagine painting something so beautiful. But, but I'd also argue this. Friends, hundreds of the ways that God shows himself, the only reason we don't see it as spectacular is because it happens a lot. It's because it is a, quote, normal part of this world. Like, like you take a caterpillar, okay? A worm <laughs> spins a cocoon and turns into a beautiful flying creature. And we're not amazed by it. A worm. Like, think about it. If that had only happened one, one time in all of history, books would have been written about that time that a worm turned into a beautiful flying creature. And later generations would have said, oh, I don't think it actually really happened because it's scientifically impossible for a worm to become a flying creature. But because it happens all the time, we're not really amazed. Like you, you, when you really think through the process of a baby growing in a womb, I know it's not the literal definition of miracle, but man, oh man, it's pretty close to miracle that's happening there. Uh, every single time that my wife was pregnant and we went through this process, all 47 times it happened. Like my, my faith was grown every single time and not just because she put the fear of God in me, okay? But because we would track the development of what was happening here. Like it would be amazing, okay? Like we would, it would be like a certain week and I don't remember what week it is, but we'd read in that little book, this week her kidneys begin to grow. And I'm just like, who told them to? Like, how's it happened? She's not sitting in the womb. It was always a she and a her with us, okay? But she's not thinking, time to grow the kidneys. No, like, it's just happening. How does this happen? This is, that's amazing. Like, if we cannot fall on our face and be like, that's, that's awesome. We're missing something there. The only reason we don't see it as spectacular is because it happens every day. God does amazing things every day that are not a miracle, but man, they're right close to that line of what a miracle is. And we're not amazed by it because it happens often. But friends, he, here is part of what scripture is showing. By metamorphosis, by sunsets, by babies developing in a womb, by a thousand ways that God works and shows his handiwork, he is displaying himself. And what the Bible is saying is there is a lot we can know about God from what he has made. Imagine you had a friend with a roommate and you never met this roommate. But one day you're over at your friend's house and the door to the roommate's room is open and you walk past and you look inside and what you see is disgusting. There is a mess of a room and a stench of trash and moldy pizza on the floor and inappropriate movies scattered around. You've never met the roommate, never seen his face, never heard his voice, but you know some things about him because you see his handiwork. Friends, God has made a world in which he shows himself. 
He shows his beauty, shows his wisdom. His, think, think sometime on the wisdom of God, of how complex cells are and, and just what, what it takes for humans to have thought. For thoughts to pass through our mind, think about how astounding that is. Think of the wisdom of God. God has revealed himself in a thousand different ways. Creation is the message that God gives to the world without words. Scripture is the message that God gives to the world with words. But there is enough in creation that we can know of God and know a lot about him know that we need him. The text is later on going to say, know that we have guilt before him. Even without knowing scripture, we can know that we have guilt before this God and need a solution to our guilt. God has made himself known internally and externally, instinctively, and also by ways that we learn. And verse 20 says, his invisible attributes are displayed. Here, here, here are two parts of what it says. His eternal power and divine nature. So first the eternal power, simply by observing the moon and the stars in the sky and that the sun is sustained by considering the fact that God gives rain so that our food grows, we can decipher that he is big and he is powerful. Sometimes study the amount of rain that it takes for one acre of crops to grow and you'll be astounded that it gets what it needs. So God displays his power. But the text also says it displays his divine nature. So, so what is meant by that? A couple possibilities. One is it could be saying that we are learning about God's character, like what he is like. Is God nice or mean? Is he cruel? Is he loving? Is he merciful? That kind of thing. Well, we can learn much of that from observing creation. But I think what is meant by divine nature is something else. Because there's another place that Paul uses this exact same kind of language. Um, to the Wednesday night crew, um, this past Wednesday night, we studied Acts 17. By the way, you can all be the Wednesday night crew every Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. Come out and pray together. little plug there. Shameless. Okay. Acts 17, one of the things that Paul does is he stands up at the Areopagus in Athens, this world and history famous um, uh, structure and, and auditorium that's there. And he delivers his sermon at the Areopagus. And one of the things that he does is, think about this. He's speaking to a people who do not believe the Bible. So he doesn't stand up and just preach the Bible. He uses creation and reason to show them things. He uses creation and reason and he makes four points that shows them that idolatry, the worship of false gods is unreasonable. It is contradictory and full of holes. Here's one of the ways that he does that. He quoted one of their own poets, one of the Greek poets. And one of the Greek poets wrote and said, we are God's offspring. Even the Greek poets recognize that there are ways that we have been made like God. The Bible goes into full explanation, says we have been made in his image. And so Paul takes that and he shows and he says, look, if we are made like God, then God can't be made out of gold or silver or stone. If God made you, you can't make God. And he wouldn't be made up of something you can fashion with your hands. Do you, do you see that? Kind of a genius way of showing there. Idolatry is absurd. 
And so when it says his divine nature here, I believe that's what's being referred to. There are many things of God's nature, God's character, who he is and his will for us that can be known even from creation. So much so, look at the end of verse 20, so that they are without excuse. On the day of judgment, when all stand before him, there is only one way that you will be right with God. It is only by being in Christ, by being attached to Christ and having received forgiveness of sins from him by trusting in him. And anyone who has not done that, regardless of background, regardless of where they come from and what's going on, no one will be able to say, but God, that's not fair. I didn't know. All know that's what the passage is saying. Everybody knows of God and everybody knows that we ought to acknowledge, worship, love, and obey him. And and that's what the text then goes on to say. So here's point number two. Yet they did not glorify God as God. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. The word for honor there um, is the word doxazo. It's where we get our English word doxology. It means to glorify. And so what the text is saying, everybody knows of God. Everybody knows certain obligations that we have toward him, but we have not given God the glory he is due. We've studied before, you know, there is a responsibility that we all have an obligation we owe to God to glorify him and glorify him in a way that he's worthy of, in a way that is appropriate. Now, this is one of the parts that the world always wants to argue with. The world is always willing to talk about morality in terms of don't harm others. But the Bible shows us there is a vertical responsibility we have. We have the duty, the obligation. We owe God worship love, obedience, glory. You should honor your parents. You should honor your governing authorities. You should honor those in authority. But how much honor should you give them? There's a way that would be too little. But there's also a way that would be too much. Be a way to honor your governing authorities too much. Like when the Romans would offer sacrifices unto Caesar, unto their rulers and such. That's giving too much honor to them. How much honor is it right? Is it appropriate to give to God? It is honor to a degree that it actually becomes another word. It is the highest of honor. It is worship. Worship and love and fear, and awe, and delight. And if you do not give worship to God, if you do not desire him supremely, then what scripture shows is we are not honoring him as he is worthy of, and we are sinning vertically against him. You owe God glory. You owe God worship. And do you notice the text also say we owe him thanks? They did not honor him or give thanks. Friends, every single good thing in your life is a gift of God's kindness. There is not one good thing in your life that came to you naturally. 
You might be able to trace it back to natural sources and such, but what scripture shows is God is ultimately the author. And it's not just like God created love and friendship at the beginning and then he wound this world up and sent it flying. And so if you have love and friendship or gifts in your life that like, well, I can look back and see that God created the beginning. No, no, no. The Bible goes much further than that. God personally chose to send into your life every blessing, every grace, every gift. You do not have one sip of clean, non-contaminated water that is not a gift from God. Every good and perfect thing comes down from the Father above. And we owe God gratitude and we owe him the expression of that gratitude. Let me spell it out really clearly. We are to stop and say thank you to God. Um, Bring a little bit of application for us here. Have you noticed that sometimes we as Christians can talk about a lot of things but never actually get around to doing them? You know, prayer is one of them. We'll sometimes talk about praying, but we haven't prayed unless we've stopped life and gone away and actually verbalized them to God. The giving of thanks is something similar. When is the last time, Christian, that you stopped for 20, 30 minutes and just counted through gracious things that God has given and said thanks? Can I give even more convicting? How about on a week like last one that was called Thanksgiving? We are called to give thanks to God, to stop and to verbalize and to say, thank you. We owe him that. We owe him worship. We owe him glory. The meaning of our lives is to glorify God. And part of our collective guilt, every single person has not given God the glory that he is due. We have seen wonderful things and we have received wonderful things but we have not responded to God rightly in them. And then here's a third point. They exchanged the living God for invented gods. Look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And then this passage addresses it one more time. Jump down to verse 25 as it's giving a reason for why verse 24, certain judgment is coming. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Let that sink in. You are a worshiping creature. Every human you worship. There is no such thing as a non-worshipping human. The atheist, the most non-religious person on the planet is still a worshipping creature. You give your highest of worship affections to someone or something. What you supremely delight in, it becomes a different kind of affection. Whatever you treasure to the highest degree, it becomes a certain kind of desire. This is worship and you give it to something and what scripture shows is if you're not giving it to the one true and living God you are giving it to someone or something and that is idolatry the most obvious form of idolatry is that of deliberate giving your worship to some other invented God verse 22 mentions the making of images images of men 
birds, calves, crawling things. But you know, the Bible goes on to even say that coveting is a form of idolatry. It's not the most deliberate. It's a more subtle way, but it is idolatry. Because when we're coveting money, we are wanting it. We are treasuring it. We are valuing it. We're counting it as more worthy than what it is and putting it in a place it does not belong. But watch this, what the scripture is showing. Every time that we participate in idolatry, it is worshiping creation over the creator. Now that's obvious to worship the sun or the moon. That's creature rather than creator. But so is worshiping money, sex, popularity, anything else. It's creature rather than creator. And so we all have a guilt of the sin of idolatry. And that includes those even who do not have access to scripture. Calvin said that our hearts are like a factory of idols. We don't just occasionally find one. We're in a constant battle of trying to keep them from coming to the forefront. So, so what does all this mean? Kind of come to the conclusion here and looking at the text as a whole. What does all of it mean? Friends, it means that every single one of us, collective humanity, we stand guilty before God. God has already begun to pour out his wrath and there is a wrath that is yet to come. Why? Because we have robbed God of glory. Those who have access to scripture before we come to Christ, we have robbed God of glory and still struggle with it after. But also those who do not have access to scripture, they have also robbed God of glory. The nations and us, we all stand guilty. And friends, this is the truth you're going to have to feel. If this is your first time to hear that kind of thing, I know everywhere you go in the world, you only hear this message of pandering to you. Only hear this message telling you how much you deserve. You deserve a burger made your way and the hairstyle exactly how you want. You deserve that. Everywhere you go, you only hear a message that is puffing you up and telling you how they're not using this word, but this is the meaning. They're telling you how righteous you are. And here is God saying the exact opposite. Here is God saying, you are unrighteous. You have sin. You're a criminal. You have guilt. And there really is a wrath of God to come. If that's your first time hearing these things, I imagine there's a bit of a wrestling match happening in your heart. But what I beg you to do is to read, read the first three chapters of Romans and see if you see this is exactly what God truly is saying. Jesus said it would be like this. Jesus said the message of the world will always contradict the message of God. We all stand guilty and all stand in need of a savior. We all stand in need of a solution for our sins and the solution is not go be good. You cannot be good enough. The solution is Christ and it's the only one. So here, this text here, it's answering all kinds of questions. It's addressing all kinds of things. And here is one that naturally flows from it that I want to make sure we get to. It answers the age old question. What about the man on the island who has never heard the name of Jesus? But he's a good man. Is he really in danger? 
And friends, the answer is absolutely not. That man is in no danger whatsoever. But before you throw any stones, hang on. That man does not exist. There is no man out there on the island somewhere who is righteous before God. If there were, then, then hear me very carefully, he would have no need of Christ. A righteous man has nothing to fear from a righteous God. But an unrighteous man has everything to fear from a righteous God. And what the scripture is showing is we all collectively are unrighteous before the living, holy, and righteous God. Sinners do have something to fear. Well, will that man be judged? All right, so he's unrighteous, but will he really be judged for not believing in Jesus? He never had the chance if he never got to hear about the Son of God. So will he be judged for not believing in Jesus? Again, the answer is absolutely not. He will not be judged for not trusting in a man he never heard of. But he will be judged for something. He will be judged for what he knew. And what he knew was the law of God written on his heart. He stands guilty just like you and I stand guilty apart from Christ. The knowledge that God has given us, we have rebelled against. You are not going to be right with God based on what you do. We already blew that one. That ship sailed. There is only a way through Christ. And so friends, do you feel some of this? Sometimes people hear this kind of thing and they start to be like, well, that's not fair. But listen, you only think it's not fair if you're still thinking we're all a bunch of good people on this planet and God needs to treat us according to our goodness and you're not yet feeling the fact of what the Bible says. This has got to sink down and you have got to believe this. I'm just telling you, this has got to be something that you are willing to acknowledge. You are evil. And before the holy and clean God, you are unclean and so am I. There is no righteousness, no cleanness, no goodness whereby we can come before God and say, hey, you owe me this. You owe all of us heaven, all of us eternal life. We are a race of rejecters of God, of ungrateful resistors of God who are unclean. There is no owing that God has when it comes to good things. The only owing that is there is justice. And friends, part of what this addresses is the urgency of the gospel. Because even Christians who know the gospel can sometimes have a little bit of this wrestling match in their minds where they kind of go, well... Do the nations really need the gospel? I mean, maybe in the end, they'll all be okay somehow. This is what the Bible is saying. Jesus says, John 18, John, uh, excuse me, John 3, 18, John 3, 36, unless you believe on the name of the Son of God, you do not have eternal life. The nations need the gospel because we all collectively stand guilty. It is a hard thing, your first time of encountering what the Bible teaches here to accept it. Because we have that natural tendency to always kind of want to be like, well, you know, what's broken in the world is the other people out there. 
but me, I'm, I'm, I'm one of the good ones that is out there. But friends, do, do you not see that what makes this world jacked up, we've all participated in? Murder, that's out there. Do you see that the root of murder is hatred? And you have participated in hatred? It's not the same degree, but it is the same sin. Rape. What a horrible atrocity. Do you see that the root of rape is lust? And you've lusted? Tyranny. Awful. The root of tyranny is pride. And you and I have participated in pride. If you look down to chapter 2, verse 1, look what it says. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. If you look at this world and you look at the evil and the thought comes to you, well, those bad people out there deserve judgment, but not me. I'm good. What scripture shows you is all the murder, all the rape, all the tyranny, all of the nasty, gross sins that go on out there, you have also participated in. Not to the same degree, but the same vein, the same kind of sin. What does it mean? We all stand guilty before God and all need a solution. God's solution that he provided is his son. God does stand ready right now, arms open, wanting to receive you, wanting to embrace you, wanting to forgive you of your sins. But there's not going to be an embracing if you keep resisting and staying away from God. You must come to him. And you come to him by turning your heart to him, leaving, resisting him and looking to Christ, trusting Christ, realizing my only hope is Jesus. If I don't get mercy from him, then I have nothing. Look to Christ and Christian The nations need the gospel and there is an urgency. There is the urgency of us raising up missionaries to go to the ends of the earth and there is an urgency in the conversations we've been cowering out of. What business do you have that you need to take care of in those in your life, your circle of influence, those who need the gospel? Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, God, we know that as you give us these truths, this is not you speaking in hatred or anger. This is your love that shows us our needs so that we will come to you and get grace. I pray, God, that every soul in this room will feel that, will not be bitter towards your truth, but will run to you. We need you. So Father, I pray that we Christians will feel the weight of this. And I pray that any in the room that have not yet come to you, they will feel the weight of this and want you and will draw near to you by faith, O God. We love you, Lord, and pray that you will give us help to live in light of these truths, to be a people who are adamant in telling the gospel and be a people who are salt and light in this world. And Father, we pray your blessing on us as we leave. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, Everybody Knows. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.